Well, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. This morning I am continuing the series on the Ten Commandments. So far I've been laying some foundation stones, so to speak, before we consider the specific commandments in Exodus 20, the the Ten Commandments themselves. And one foundation stone that I've already laid is the understanding of the threefold division of the law. Threefold division of the law. When we have the law of God, we divide it to help us understand different categories of laws God has given in His Word. Ceremonial law, civil law, moral law. The ceremonial and civil law has been abrogated, no longer binding upon the people of God. It was for a particular time in redemptive history and its purpose has been fulfilled. But there is then that third type and category of the law of God, the moral law of God, which is timeless, universal, and unchanging. And so we saw the threefold division of the law. And we saw that the Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law of God. And then last week we began considering the proper use of the moral law of God. There are proper and improper uses of the moral law of God. And one example of an improper use of the law of God that we considered last week was legalism. Seeking to be justified before God or seeking to maintain one's justification before God by works of the law. Legalism. Any attempt to use the moral law of God to reconcile us to Him, to justify us before God, is an improper, unlawful use of the moral law of God. We could even say it's a wicked and evil use of God's moral law. In our fallen state, that would be an abuse, we might say, of the moral law of God. For Romans 3 verse 20 says... By works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. However, we began considering last week that there are lawful and proper, even necessary uses of the moral law of God. And one proper and necessary use is what many have described it as in this way, a mirror. The moral law of God is a mirror to show us something. Namely, to show us our sin, to reveal our sin, and therefore to convict us of our sin, convince us of our guilt before a holy God, and show us our need of a Savior. This is what we see in Romans chapter 7. We see this function of the moral law of God in Romans 7, specifically verses 7 to 13. So follow along as I read Romans 7. Verses 7 to 13. Hear the word of God. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, 
which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin, by, to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. In the year 2014, there was an article published on the website of CNN. It was December of 2014, and let me read a little bit of this article for you. It was entitled, Behold, Atheists' New Ten Commandments. The article says this, Lex Baer, then executive of Airbnb, now CEO of Quizlet, and John Figdor, then humanist chaplain, you hear that, humanist chaplain, at Stanford University, delivered their own ten non-commandments in a book they co-wrote, Atheist Heart, Humanist Mind. The article says this, A lot of atheist books are about whether to believe in God or not, according to Baer, who co-authored the book. We wanted to consider, okay, so you don't believe in God, what's next? And that's actually a much harder question, he said. So the article says, enter the 10 non-commandments contest in which atheists were asked to offer modern alternatives to the famous Decalogue. And to sweeten the pot, the contest offered $10,000 to the winning would-be Moses. And so there were thousands and thousands of submissions of these 10 non-commandments. There were no thou shalts and no thou shalt nots. There was nothing that was about murder or stealing or adultery. And so the article goes on to say, if they lack faith, speaking of atheists, if they lack faith in the divine, the atheist non-commandments display a robust faith in humankind, as if Silicon Valley had replaced Sinai. Bayer said, the scientific method and wisdom of crowds or the tribes that gather online each day will weed out bad ideas. In other words, this is an open-ended and hopefully progressive process. In other words, they were crowdsourcing to produce non-authoritative, ever-changing standards. They call them non-commandments. Whatever they call them, they're certainly not timeless and universal and unchanging. Here are some of the ten non-commandments chosen as winners in this contest. The first non-commandment was this, be open-minded. Be open-minded. The third was this, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. The fourth commandment, or non-commandment, I should say, was this. Every person has the right to control their own body. In other words, it's perfectly okay to murder an unborn baby. 
Their fifth non-commandment was this. God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. To which, again, you want to ask questions like, well, how do you define a good person and what do you define as a full and meaningful life? Their ninth non-commandment was this. There is no right way to live. In other words, there is no God. God's not necessary. I can do whatever I want, live however I desire. I get to make up the rules as I go, for there are no moral absolutes. Let's throw off the chains of that one that people call God and rid ourselves of all moral standards except the ones that we determine for ourselves, at least determined to be good for now. For this is a process. And what we consider good for now might change at a later date. Whether they formally confess it or not, this is the way many professing Christians actually live. Or at least how they live some of the time in relation to some of the things in life. There are many who go to church who call themselves Christians who are practical atheists, practical humanists, living as if they have complete autonomy, ultimately accountable to no one, practically denying the the authority of Scripture, and living based on whatever feels right in the moment. And yet they would call themselves Christians. They've been conformed to the world. Christians, whether you are aware of it or not, the world's so-called Ten Commandments or Non-Commandments, their standards, their moral standards, and that is what they are. They are moral standards. The world and their standards are pressing upon you. And while they say there is no right way to live, while that sounds inclusive, the reality is that those who hold to that statement actually strongly believe there is a wrong way to live. Biblical Christianity, in their view, is a wrong way to live. And the goal of many in the world today is to eradicate those who hold to the timeless, universal, unchanging moral law of God. They would like to see it be, be gone once and for all. So what are we to do? What do we need to do? In the midst of this, I mean, that was 10 years ago, and, and things have changed greatly even the last 10 years. Of these non-commandments and how the world is saying, no, here, this is what we ought to do. Jettison everything to do with God. Jettison everything to do with absolutes, moral absolutes, and, and just... Be open-minded and you don't need God. You can live however you want to live. There's no right way to live. There's a wrong way. They won't say it, but there is a wrong way. Some say it. That's biblical Christianity. What do we do? How do we live in this environment as Christians? What must we do? Well, here's what we must do. We must proclaim God's moral law. We must not shrink back from doing that. Just because God's moral law is rejected doesn't mean that we should be silent. We should, in fact, we must proclaim the moral law of God. The world, even though they reject the Ten Commandments and the moral law of God, 
The world needs to come face to face with the moral law of God. For one of God's intended uses of his moral law in a fallen sinful world is that it might bring to light how fallen and sinful human beings are. Romans 3 verse 20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Whereas I just read in Romans 7 verse 7, Paul says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Fallen human beings may not want to hear the moral law of God. They may oppose it. They may run from it. They may hate it. They may persecute those who believe it. But the moral law of God is exactly what sinners need to hear. It's exactly what they need to know in order that they might be convicted of their sin and guilt. And this is a good and proper use of the moral law of God. To show sinners their sin. Now do you remember the three proper uses of the moral law of God that I summarized last week? The moral law of God is a mirror a muzzle, and a map. It's a mirror. It reveals something. It's revelatory. And what it reveals is our sin. As we come face to face with the holiness of God, for God's moral law reveals how holy God is. It shows us and reveals our sin. We, we look at it and we see the dirt of our sin all over our faces. But then it points us, having convicted us, it points us to the need of a Savior and leads us to Christ, who is the Savior from sin. So the law of God reflects and mirrors the perfect righteousness of God. It tells us how holy He is, and it exposes our sinfulness. It's a mirror, but it's also, we said, a muzzle. That is, it restrains, it curbs. And so a second purpose of the law of God, a use of the law of God, is to restrain evil. The law in and of itself cannot change human hearts. However, the holy standard of God's law and and the consequences of breaking it serve to restrain people from doing their worst. It serves as a muzzle, so to speak, or a bridle for man's sin. It restrains him. So it's a mirror, it's a muzzle, but thirdly, this particular use of the law is for those who are believers, who have come to Christ. It directs them. It's a map that shows them, and now as a Christian, how they are to live. It directs them in the paths of righteousness for His namesake, that we might grow in holiness, so we might know what is pleasing to the Lord. So we talked about those three proper uses of the moral law of God, a mirror, a muzzle, and a map. Now, back to the first use. It is a mirror. This is what we sometimes call the evangelistic use of the moral law of God. And we just sang of of that use in the hymn, the law of God is good and wise and sets his will before our eyes, shows us the way of righteousness, but then dooms us to death when we transgress. The law of God is good, but since the fall, its holiness condemns us all and dooms us for our sin to die and has no power to justify The light of holiness imparts, or its light of holiness imparts, the knowledge of our sinful hearts. That, here's the purpose, we may see our lost estate and seek deliverance ere too late. This is a good and proper use of the moral law of God. 
It gives us the knowledge of sin. It shows us our guilt before God and our, the consequences of sin. We deserve eternal condemnation. And as that mirror that shows us our sin, it now again shows us we need a way of salvation. It's not through works of the law. It's got to be through someone else, some other means, namely Jesus Christ and his work. So the moral law of God cannot save. We can't be justified by works of the law. And instead it shows us our sin and it convicts us as guilty before a holy God and it condemns us to eternal condemnation. So that would lead to a question. Someone might say, well, is the law sin? Sounds like it's bad. And that's the question in Romans 7 verse 7 that the Apostle Paul anticipates. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? So that's the question that now he begins to answer. Now, again, why would someone ask that question? Why would someone come to the conclusion that the law is sin or even ask, is the law sin? And the reason is because Paul, in the book of Romans, has already spoken about the law's inability to save. He has contrasted the futility of a supposed righteousness which comes through works of the law with the saving power of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Paul has taught in the book of Romans that the law condemns us, it brings wrath. And so someone might come to the false conclusion that the law is sin. And someone might have waged that accusation against the Apostle Paul. You're saying the law is sin. Look at all the things it does that seem to be bad and, and sinful. Paul, you're impugning the law. You're saying that it's sinful. You're saying the problem is with the law of God. And so Paul anticipates that, and he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? But the Apostle Paul here is not impugning or blaming the law of God. So he says, may it never be. The law is not sin. On the contrary, the opposite is true. Jump down to verse 12. That's where he concludes the opposite is true. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now question, as you interpret this, what law is he talking about? He says the law is holy, it's righteous, it's good. Is he referring to the whole law here? Is he referring to the law, ceremonial, civil, and moral? No, here in the context, the Apostle Paul is referring specifically to the moral law of God. He refers to it as the commandment. And then he makes reference to one of those commandments, you shall not covet. So he's wrestling with this question, this accusation that might be made against the moral law of God. Is it sin because of the effects it has? It doesn't make me feel very good. This would be how people today kind of decipher for what's good and what's bad. How do I feel when I come in contact with it? Makes me feel bad. Then it must be bad. And that's the vernacular of the day. Here he's saying, no, nothing can be further from the truth. It is the law of God. It's holy. It's righteous. It's good. And all three of those adjectives are used of God. God is holy. God is righteous. God is good. Therefore, his law is holy, righteous, and good. So the problem is not with the moral law of God, it's with us. 
The content and requirements of the moral law of God are holy, righteous, and good, but we are unholy, unrighteous, and wicked. The law simply reveals our depravity. The law is not sinful. It exposes our sinfulness. The commandment isn't sin. It exposes our sin. If you have an MRI... And then you get the results back and it shows you have a tumor or cancer. You don't blame the MRI. If you look in a mirror and you see dirt all over your face, you don't crush the mirror and say the mirror's the problem. Or get rid of your mirror and say, okay, problem solved. No, the dirt's still there. The mirror is just showing you what you look like. It's showing you the dirt on your face. When the law of God shows sin, the law of God is not the fault. That is a good and proper use of the law of God, is a mirror to show us our sinfulness. So how do we see the goodness of the law of God? Here is one way we see the goodness of the law of God. It reveals sin. And that is good. Paul says, I would not have come to know sin, verse 7, except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So he is saying here, the law gives us knowledge. Knowledge of what? Sin. The law of God gives us knowledge of sin. And there is indeed such a thing as sin. And so the law of God removes any claims of ignorance about God's standards. The revealed will of God gives us knowledge of what is sin. And it gives us knowledge of specific sin. And specific sins we have actually committed. He says, I would not have known about coveting. Here's one specific sin. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. So now it's just not in general that I'm a sinner, but there's specificity. The law gives specificity to our sin. We know and understand what specific sins we have committed against God. So the law of God gives clear, unmistakable identification of sin. As one Commentator said, the dissemination of specific commands clarifies that human beings have not kept God's law. If you get pulled over by an officer, you want to know, officer, what law did I violate? You want to know specifically. Well, God's moral law tells us specifically. But what Paul is saying in this passage goes beyond even that. The law of God also gives knowledge of our sinfulness and our sinful condition. It doesn't just reveal sin in general, and it doesn't just point to specific sins that we have committed. It does that, but it does even more. It also shows us our lost estate and our sinful condition. And we'll see that in this passage. Now, does Paul mean that without the moral law of God, he would not have known, or or the, the specificity of it, the commandments themselves, that he would not have been aware of his sinfulness? No, that's not what he is saying. He's already written in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law, meaning they don't have it in written, inscripturated form like the Jews did, when they do instinctively, naturally, the things of the law, 
these, not having the law in Scripture revealed to them in that way, those Gentiles are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in the heart. So there, it's not as though you can't have any knowledge of your sinfulness apart from having the specificity of the moral law of God in Scripture. So we do, and people do. We can count on that. Again, I remember R.C. Sproul saying one of the questions he would ask in evangelism when people would really not show an interest in the things of Christ and the gospel, he would ask them a question like this, what do you do with your guilt? Now, of course, some would say, what guilt? I don't have any guilt. But what he's counting on is the, the moral law of God is written on the heart, and they know that they have done things wrong. They don't even keep their own standards. And where do those standards come from? When someone breaks in front of you in line, you said, you can't do that. Why not? It's not fair. I was here first. Well, that's a sense of moral rightness and wrongness. You can count on that. What do you do with your guilt? And even when the atheist lays his head on the pillow at night, that guilt is there, whether he formally denies there's a God or not. Now, they may try to suppress that guilt, but they still have a knowledge of sin. They don't need the commandment in written form, you shall not murder, to know that murder is sin. So when Paul says in Romans 7, verse 7, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. He does not simply mean that the law gave a specific commandment that he then specifically had knowledge of and violated. By using the words to know and would not have known, Paul means that he would not have known how utterly sinful he was and the awfulness of his spiritual condition apart from this use of the law. The law not only revealed specific sins that had been broken, but it revealed how sinful he was. How did it do that? By exacerbating sin in his life, by provoking it, by stimulating it even more. In verse 5, he speaks of the sinful passions that were aroused, he says, by the law. Look in verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Now, when you boil down the grammar of that, he is saying sin produced in me coveting. So we could say it this way, sin produced in me sin. Now, what he means by this is not just a specific violation of a command, but he means sin, my sinful estate, when it comes in contact with the law of God, just produces in me more sin. And it shows the sinfulness of my condition. For apart from the law, he says, sin is dead. By dead here, he, he's, not, he's using a figure of speech. He doesn't mean that it's dead, that it doesn't exist. That sin didn't exist apart from the law. He, it's more like this. It's dormant. It's inactive. It's sleeping, so to speak. One commentator said this, sin slumbered, before the arrival of the law, in contrast to the influence it exerted, exerted once the law came into being. So there's this idea that it was dead. Sin was dead. It was slumbering. It was dormant, so to speak, until it came in contact with the law of God. And now, 
coming in contact with that which is good and holy, God's moral standards, now it comes alive in me. I see it. It's active. It's not slumbering anymore. Now you might have guessed in light of the birth of a grandchild that I might throw in a baby illustration. So let me illustrate it like this. A newborn, when you hold it, is very precious. Had that joy yesterday. You're holding it and even when she tried to cry, it was, you know, these little sweet sounds. Very precious little baby. That newborn had not violated any specific laws that she's aware of at that time. She doesn't have knowledge of the commands of God. Does this mean she's not a sinner? No, she's a sinner. She's born in Adam. But she's not aware of God's law yet. But as a baby grows and continues to grow and then comes in contact with the knowledge of the law of God, which parents, that's what we're to do, teach them the word of God, his moral law, the whole of his word, but we, we bring the moral law of God before them. Now they're aware of it as they mature. Then the child has a knowledge of God's law. Now what takes place when that child be, has this knowledge? When now they become aware of specific violations of the law? how they have broken God's law. And then sin seems to increase. When they're little, say this little baby, and and we draw false conclusions. People do this. Oh, this is an innocent little baby with no sin. No, that's not the case. But we begin to see that very quickly. And even more specifically, when they begin to have a knowledge of the, specifically the law of God, then we begin to see their sinful condition. It was already there. But now, it's not slumbering anymore. It's very well alive. So sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, will produce in that child all kinds of sin. For apart from the law, the sin is dead. It seems to be dormant. But now, knowledge of it, it becomes alive. And so sin may seem to be slumbering, but it will rise. It will be aroused. And sin will be more and more evident as a child grows in his or her knowledge of the law of God? And how will sin become more and more evident in a child's heart? Because sin will take opportunity through the commandment and produce all kinds of sin. And in this way, the law shows the utter sinfulness of a person's condition. Now, Paul is speaking personally here, but what he is saying is true of every person. Again, verse 8, sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. So now what he's referring to is specifically one of the Ten Commandments, this summary of the moral law of God, namely the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. Now, why does he choose the Tenth Commandment here? Well, this commandment, the Tenth Commandment, reflects clearly and explicitly the desires of the heart rather than just external outward actions. For there are those who would say, well, I've not committed adultery, and maybe externally they they maybe haven't. 
Of course, that law, you shall not commit adultery, is spiritual in nature. It's not just if you haven't committed the act itself. No, if you lust, Jesus says, the mind, we commit adultery in various ways, you, you violated that commandment. You've broken God's moral law. But those who are self-righteous, and this is who Paul once was, a self-righteous Pharisee who just said, I'm going to keep God's law externally, externally, externally. I'm going to have an external righteous, righteousness as much as I can possibly do that. That was his focus. Outside, he looked neat and clean. But then the law of God says you shall not covet. And coveting demonstrates clearly that what we delight in can be sin. If we delight in something or someone other than God, more more than God, that's sin. And now we're worshiping someone and something other than God who alone is worthy of worship. That's why covetousness is called idolatry in Ephesians 5 verse 5 and Colossians 3 verse 5. You you see the unity of the moral law of God. Coveting is related to the, the first four commandments. Our responsibilities before God. So here he uses this particular commandment because it was true in his own life, but because it also shows that the law of God doesn't just address externals, but internals what you desire, what you love. There are good desires and holy desires. But as sinful human beings, we are fraught with all kinds of sinful desires. We lust for things. We have desires for things that are sinful. Or we desire things more than God. Or we desire something doesn't belong to us. And and it shows that it's not just an external righteousness that... or, or, or. behavior that is sin, but it's also the heart. And so he uses this to show how utterly sinful he was and human beings are. It gets to heart issues. And he says here, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, and he's personifying sin here. He says, sin sees the commandment as an occasion and opportunity to attack. It seizes the opportunity. Sin uses the commandment, he says, as an opportunity to to aggravate our sinful condition, to stir it up. Some have called this the forbidden fruit syndrome. You know how this is. When, When you prohibit something from someone, they desire it even more. That's our sinful tendency. Prohibitions tend to arouse the desire to transgress. Don't look in the closet, you tell your child. And they want to look in the closet. I've got a gift in there for you for your birthday. I don't want you to see it. And now they want to see it. I remember, I think I learned this from another family member. But around Christmas time, when gifts would be wrapped and put under a Christmas tree, I'd want to know what it was. And often, someone who would wrap it didn't want to put it in another box. So it was in the box that shows what it was in. So you pick up the present when no one's looking, and you just rip it just a little bit until you can maybe see a little bit of what it was and get some tape in and put it back down, then you place it back down, bottom side down. Maybe no one would know that you found out what it was. That's human nature. I can't see this. I can't have this. It's a prohibition, and it makes me want to know what it is. You tell your child, don't touch the glass. 
I just cleaned it in the car. Of course, they want, oh, I want to touch the glass. Augustine spoke of a time when as a boy, he said he, he would join with his friends in stealing pears, or fruit, pears. Not because he wanted them. Because he said they fed them to the pigs. But because of the pleasure he found in just doing something disobedient to the law. I shoplifted one time as an unbelieving teenager. Uh, it's old, you know, video games. It was Atari, I think. <laughs> and I was in a mall with a friend, and we didn't need any more games. We had a whole bunch of games, but like, oh, let's try to steal one. It was near the entrance. Why? I, I doubt we played that game. It was, it was a pretty lame game, as you might say, because it was, it was in the, the clearance section there. But it was just for the thrill of being able to try to, can we do this? Can we lift this without getting caught? Something's forbidden. And this is what it is with covetousness. There's something that's not ours, but we say, I want that. Sin is shown to be sinful because it takes a known commandment of God and disregards it, in fact, and looks for ways to violate it and get around it. The adulterous woman says in Proverbs 9, verse 17, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Proverbs 20, verse 17, Bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man. That's our sinful condition. It goes on to say, but afterward his mouth is filled with gravel. So doing what is forbidden seems sweet because we get the feeling we're all master. I did this. I accomplished it. You can't tell me not to do that. Sin likes to have no master but itself. And so Paul says, sin taking opportunity, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me sin of every kind. Here, coveting he's talking about. Coveting of every kind. Multifaceted coveting. Not just one kind of coveting, but the, the commandment, you shall not covet. All of a sudden he's realizing, I'm, I'm coveting here and here and here and here. Remember the illustration I used, I don't know if it was in the sermon or in the worship service, but I think it was just in the worship service where when you're looking for a car to buy and you're researching a car, then you see it on the road all the time. And then to add to the illustration, then you begin to want it more. Hey, there it is. Oh, that's a nice car. And then you begin to want it more. You're aware of it, so you see it more. So here the law exposes his sin of coveting, but now he's seen I'm coveting in all these ways. It produced in me coveting of every kind. You can covet a person's possessions. It can come from greed. It can come from the love of money. Or coveting another person's possessions could just be out of hatred for that person and jealousy that leads to wanting what they have. Which could lead to stealing. Murderous and hateful thoughts could arise from coveting what another person has. You can covet money because of pride and the desire for the supposed prestige that that money will give you. You can covet another person's wife, a lustful and adulterous covetousness. You can covet immaterial things. You can covet fame and notoriety and the approbation and approval of others. 
Covetousness can be seen in an unwillingness to give as we should. We can be stingy. It arises from covetousness. A person might save much money and have a a very large retirement account. Not from wisdom, but from sin. Greed or trust in money, a hope in money. We can covet our neighbor's wages, our neighbor's job. We can covet our neighbor's circumstances. When we're undergoing trials, we can be envious of the joyful circumstances of another. We can covet the abilities of others, the spiritual gifts and callings of another. We can covet time, money, possessions, glory, approval. Do you see all kinds of coveting? And the Apostle Paul says, but sin, my sinfulness, taking an opportunity through the commandment, you shall not covet, now it's producing in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, the sin, uh, sin is dead. It was dormant in a sense. But then he says, verse 9, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, I, or sin became alive and I died. I once was alive apart from the law. Some think he's talking about his childhood and the illustration I just gave you. But he was alive, but he didn't have that specific knowledge. But then as he grew, he had specific knowledge as he matured. I don't think that's really the specificity of what he's saying here. He's just using an illustration. One commentator said this. He is speaking of the unperturbed, self-complacent, self-righteous life which he lived before turbulent emotions and conviction of sin described in the two preceding verses, overtook him. I once was alive, or I thought I was alive, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, one translation says it this way, sin sprang to life, and I died. Sin became alive, and it it killed me. So he says in verse 10, And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Again, sin is personified throughout this passage. But let me remind you, sin cannot be separated from the one doing it. He's not excusing his actions. Say, well, it's just sin in me. It wasn't me. It's not the blame shifting. No, far from that, he's saying... My sinfulness. We are moral agents, and sin can never be separated from the moral agent doing it. So once complacent in his sin, Paul describes the lack of peace and the presence of conviction. And so he comes to this conclusion. The problem's not the law, verse 12. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, my sinfulness, in order that it might be shown to be sin, made very clear that it's sin and sinfulness by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly Sinful. This is the sinfulness of sin. That it might show just how wicked I am. John Murray in his commenta- commentary said this. 
It is the perversity of sin as the contradiction of the law and as using the law for the aggravation of that contradiction that vindicates the law as holy. The law exposes sin and convicts of it. The law becomes the occasion of sin in that the depravity residing in us is thereby aroused to activity. The law aggravates sin. It is the instrumentality through which sin is aggravated, but the law is not sinful. So again, the problem is not the moral law of God. It's good. It shows the depth of our sins. Isn't that good that it shows the depth of sin? How you answer that question really determines or or demonstrates, I should say, your spiritual state. It is good that it shows our sin. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, if you are familiar with that, there's a point in which Pilgrim is taught by interpreter. At the beginning of his journey, interpreter explains some biblical truths to him. And there's one occasion where it, it takes him to, it says, a very large parlor in the house, and it's full of dust. He says it's never been swept. And so, after he looks at this dusty room, the interpreter calls for a man to sweep. And it says, Now when he began to sweep, the dust began so abundantly to fly about that Christian had almost wherewith been choked. And so he explains this to him. Interpreter says, The parlor is the heart of a man that was never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original sin and inward corruptions that have, been defi- that have defiled the whole man. He that began to sweep at first is the law. And as the law begins to sweep, it just, the dust flies all around so that pilgrim begins to get choked by it. He says the moral law of God is is like a broom, you might say. It just stirs up the dust. It can't get rid of it. There's too much dust to get rid of it. And then he explains the gospel as as a woman who comes in and, and begins to put some water on the dust to subdue it and then you can take it away. But the the law just aggravates the dust. It's like a broom sweeping a very dusty room. It aggravates and stirs it up. Sin is so severe, it's so pervasive that the broom of God's moral law cannot get rid of it, cannot subdue it. In fact, it seems to produce more. But all the power of the gospel of Christ... In the gospel, there's a remedy for the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. Now, let me, let me just give you some application in this proper use of the law that we see here and we see in other places. That the, the moral law of God, a proper use of it, is that it might be a mirror to show us our sin. Let me give some application for evangelism. And just remind you again, first, that the law and gospel are not enemies, but friends. Don't make the mistake of saying the law, the moral law of God is an enemy of the gospel and therefore forsake it in your evangelism. But be very careful that those to whom you are speaking in their fallen state, just like we once were, apart from the grace of God in Christ, 
they will take the moral law of God and want to go to legalism. So be very careful not to use the moral law of God in a way that would make a person think that he can obtain favor with God or forgiveness from God through attempts of keeping the law of God. Legalism is common to man. It's a part of our sinful fallen nature. And therefore we must be explicit that the opposite is true. The law of God cannot justify. It just shows you your sin. But don't be ashamed of the law of God. Count on it written in the heart as you share the gospel with people. Count on a conscience. Yes, it may be seared to a certain degree. They may suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But you don't abandon it. Our culture is increasingly rejecting the moral law of God. Adultery is flaunted. Homosexuality is celebrated. I mean, creation ordinances are denied that they even exist. Marriage is desecrated. The basics of created order and the foolishness of man, things like gender and all the confusion there. But just because that's the case, don't be ashamed of proclaiming the law of God. The church, what it does is say, people don't like it. Let's use something else to try to lead them to Christ. No, this is a proper use of the moral law of God. But don't be surprised when you face opposition and persecution when you bring the moral law of God before them. Those who want to live lawless lives will respond in hatred. But Jesus said, they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. But do not be dissuaded, don't be deterred. Proclaim the law of God, but then proclaim the sweetness of Christ. If you face persecution, and you very well may, as you say, no, this is God's holy standard, and they should look at it and be convicted and agree and then be led to Christ. But in certain cases, it may turn father and mother against son and daughter, or son and daughter against father and mother. It may turn brother against sister, sister against brother. Don't be surprised, but don't put the moral law of God on the shelf because of that. No, use it in evangelism. Don't be afraid to use the moral law of God to convict them of sin. Sometimes we want to take the guilt away. Then you're taking the sweetness of the gospel away. The only way the conviction and guilt of sin should be removed is through faith in Christ. Because then their sins are removed. And now the weight of the burden is removed. But don't you try to remove it through your means. How do you see this today? This just blanket with no explanation and no gospel. Just Jesus loves you. You know how much he loves you? He stretched out his arms and said this much. That's not in the Bible. That's just making so light of what he did on the cross. Jesus is your friend. Jesus needs you. He can't live without you. None of that is gospel. All that does is say, then you, you do that. Jesus is your friend. You've broken the law of God, and God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man. Who's that? Jesus Christ. You said he loved me. Again, that's a whole other subject. Jesus is loving toward even those who are unbelieving. But that's different from giving them the idea that he loves you savingly. And he's just out there saying, please come. They're caricatures of Jesus. 
No, proclaim there's a law of God, you've broken it. Then when you preach Christ, it's not an idol. It's the true Christ of the Bible. He's a Savior. He's not your buddy. He's not your cosmic psychotherapist just to make you feel better. He's a Savior from sin. Use the law of God in your evangelism. It's a God-given, appointed use of it. Let me apply this to parenting as we close. Use the moral law of God in parenting. Reprove your children with the word of God. Use the scriptures. Bring the, the Ten Commandments before them. Bring the moral law of God before them. Use the terminology. Get to heart issues that the law exposes. Do what, and be a, Learn how to skillfully use the moral law of God, even as Paul describes as it was used in his life. It's not just who had the toy first. Bring up coveting or love for your your brother or sister. This is a heart issue. Don't just bring it up, just want to solve the problem so you can go do this and that and get things you need to get done that day. No, use the moral law of God and take the time to use it skillfully to show the coveting of all kinds that exist in the heart of our sinful children. Why are you being disrespectful? You have a rebellious heart. Why do you lie? What are you seeking? Why are you angry? What idol are you seeking? Why are you unhappy about not getting what you wanted in the store? It's greed, it's covetousness, it's idolatry. Why are you complaining and arguing? Why are you disputing? You lust and you do not have, therefore you you fight. James chapter 4 verse 1. So use the law of God in the lives of your children that it might convict them. But always make sure they know it's sin against God. As parents, isn't it? so easy to begin to to make the focus that it's what we command. And make sure they know that their sin is ultimately against God. Well, you never do anything right. Why don't you ever do what I say? No, have a gospel-oriented parenting. Point them to Christ and constantly point them to the Savior. Don't use the law without gospel. The law is not an end in and of itself. It is, it is used in order to point them to Christ. So constantly point your children to Christ. In the words of the hymn, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. So use the law of God to bring a holy fear of the guilt of their sin. But then, in grace my fears relieved. Grace in Christ. Point them to Christ. How often we convict but we don't point to Christ. So point them to Jesus Christ. Parents, I've said this on other occasions. The goal, again, is not just the conviction of sin, that they might try to do better. Conviction is not salvation. Conviction is not faith in Christ. It's necessary to be saved. You must be convicted of your sin. The law must come to bear upon your heart and show your guilt of your sin. But But that's not salvation. So always point them to Christ that those sins might be relieved and forgiven through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't mistake conviction with salvation. For those are ways that we use the law of God, but but don't tether 
the moral law of God to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So do you see how important the moral law of God is and this proper use of it is for evangelism, for parenting? It shows us our sin. It shows us our lost estate. But then it might sweetly comply with the gospel and point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't be ashamed of the law of God. For when it is tethered to the gospel, we will indeed be able to pro- proclaim the glory of God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, how we thank you for this which is good and holy and righteous, your moral law that is a reflection that shows us your holy and righteous and good character. Thank you that you have shown us our sin. For those of us who are sinners who have been redeemed, we have seen our sin. We have been convicted of our sin. But we also see there is one who has kept the law fully and completely in whom there is no spot and stain of sin, the Lord Jesus. A spotless lamb who then shed his blood for us as a substitute. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that we would be wise in the use of your moral law as we seek to be salt and light as we seek to be those who proclaim the good news of the gospel. And Father, as the world increasingly sears their consciences and suppresses the truth, or may we not be ashamed of the goodness of your law. And we pray, give us wisdom in using it skillfully to prepare a way and a means by which then we might lead people to Christ. We pray these things that the gospel might spread and that sinners might be saved to the praise of the glory of your grace. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.